Yeah, it's yeah. dramatic. Well, welcome back. Um, and hopefully, um, drilling down on these seven churches was, um, was interesting and worth your, worth your reading. Uh, as always, terrible question. Um, where did your, where did your thoughts go this week? Were there, um, sort of questions you had or comments or, okay, I had an aha moment about what this is maybe really about? Any, any opening thoughts here? You know what I was thinking when I was reading through all the seven churches and they were talking about all their sins is nothing's changed. Mm. <laughs> I mean, we may be higher tech, but we're still committing the same sins they were committing. Yeah. Would you say more about that? Well, it's just when they talk about, um, and now I won't remember the details of exactly what it was, but as they went through every church, and mainly when I was looking at the at the um, the commentary, you know, and they went through each city and they talked about, you know, uh, one was judgmental and, you know, demanded that people follow rules and the other was, you know, and particularly the one that said that they believed in God and they, they wanted to follow and they wanted to be accepting except they didn't really want to follow any of the rules. They just, they wanted their own rules and they wanted to mm -hmm. do what they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I thought, we're not a lot different now. You know, we want what we want. Particularly that one, but maybe that's because that's my, yeah. <laughs> that's my own thing. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I definitely want us to come back to that as a reflection piece, okay. if we can. How about other observations or, you know, again, questions or insights this week? Well, I guess one of the thoughts that I had <clears throat> that, um, that they brought up in the piece here, and sometimes it takes somebody else to jog my, my, my mind, if you will, is... Why is John, and this is of course not John the Baptist or, or the John mm -hmm. the Gospel, but um, why is John so certain that, um, that uh, it, it's not that if people don't start practicing the teachings of Jesus that that um, that something's well, something's going to happen now. But why is he so concerned about the, about persecution later? I mean, what evidence does he have? Not evidence so much, but I guess he must see something on the horizon that causes him to do this. Or um, it's kind of like like um, when you when when something is new, um, it it takes off, and then. It can plateau mm -hmm. and actually start to decline. Decline, yeah. and so I'm wondering if maybe he's not writing that to this period of potential decline. People have they've heard the stories uh, verbally, maybe even sung in writing, mm -hmm. um, but now they are thinking. He's thinking things are starting to decline, so I've got to I've got to kick it up. Mm. Uh, or uh, uh, to uh, reinvigorate um, yeah. the, uh, the, the believers to, to, to continue to practice and grow? It's an interesting question, and I think probably that, you know, this is, I don't know that I have the answer, but I think particularly since um, 70, when the temple was destroyed, the differentiation between Judaism and Christianity, remember, grew much tighter. Uh, Christians had tried to identify with Jews so that they could be a tolerated religion because of their antiquity, but now they didn't want to identify with Jews who were a rebel force, and, um, well, the Jews denied that identification as well. Um, so there's really a bifurcation of the two groups, which meant right that, that um, Christians were sort of getting treated um, at, at a minimum like L. Ron Hubbard's people or Scientology, people are very skeptical, you know, and uh, this is a cult, that sort of business. Put on top of that, they were considered antisocial, like against the grain and hurting the empire. So, like, things go bad, here are your witches, right? So, this is, 
sort of at that level. And probably you see that as that grows, as people become a scapegoat group, it seems like that's only going to increase and not diminish. I mean, in some ways, maybe that's the handwriting on the wall that, that this John is identifying. Um, you know, again, I, I, I told you there's been a lot of research that there's not empire-wide persecutions going on, and I, and I still think that's right, but um, there's some localized issues. And then I think what you said that's really interesting, that um, Max Weber, if you know that guy, um, he's a um, philosopher, psychologist, uh, he, he and a guy named Ernst Trollsch talk about how a movement changes into an institution, and so a movement, of course, is very dynamic, it's charismatic, people are opting in, but then they raise their children in it, so the kids don't opt in, they're sort of institutionalized. And um, you, know, you, you can notice this in anything, like when a movement starts, like let's say the civil rights era, um, initially Rosa Parks was like a leader, she wasn't just a bus lady. Well, as momentum grew, um, the movement became institutionalized, so what do you know, women were subjugated again because that was culturally normative. So in the beginning, women enjoyed these places of like leadership, they were called apostles, deacons, etc. But um, that starts to become so countercultural that cultural normatizes some of the movement as it becomes an institution, if that makes sense. Um, now John's not writing at the time of Constantine, but um, most Scholars, I've read historians say that the church changes more during the reign of Constantine than ever before or after. And what year is that? Era is that? Uh, early 300s. Um, you know, this is when, when Christianity is tolerated, priests aren't taxed, vestments are imported from sort of Roman uh, uh, cultic affairs and, and civil uh, magistrates. Um, buildings are appropriated, and that's when we get like the rotunda. Uh, the, you know, and things like the apses are added on. All that's a really big change. The Nicene Creed comes, so there's this desire to, like, normalize doctrine. Um, so we get big changes like that as movements become institutions. Does normalizing doctrine mean, to a degree, that now the leaders have more control? Um, I, in some ways, yeah, there's thought, there's thought police, and there's less toleration, and toleration is probably that word instead of acceptance of diversity. And, and this continues uh, today. I think it's actually one of those interesting things about Christianity is that we've become very, 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 very dogmatic within denominations. I, I was checking in at the, at the doctor the other day, and I had my collar on, and the security guard was like, Hey, like, what what kind of thing are you? <laughs> and, you know, I think I said, well, I'm an Episcopalian. He's like, oh, I'm an Anglican, and my priest said Episcopalians don't even have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Is that true? And I was like, well, that's just such a strange question to ask. I mean, I'm not really sure I have to believe in anything. You know, but that is sort of like the core story. You know, do I have to believe it's a historical fact or can I believe? I mean, is I didn't take that on with him. I was like, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think we're like a resurrection church, you know. But, but, but apparently, the Anglican priest had said this that like we're these sort of liberal Christian people, and so. I'm not just raising this uh, to, to chase a tangent. I mean, that's sort of what's happening in here. The Nicolaitans are people who are saying, well, you know, some of these rules are negotiable. In fact, many of them are. And John's sort of saying, seems like, well, not these two. Not, not um, you know, meat sacrificed to idols and not uh, sexual immorality. And, and maybe it's helpful to say up front, right, all meat is sacrificed to something. You read this in um, the 1 Corinthians, and Paul essentially says, some, you know, some people are mature enough to realize that those idols aren't real, so it doesn't matter. But some people think that you, if you eat that meat, you're recognizing those idols as real, so you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and, and, and Paul's really like, ambiguous about what to do. He said they're not real, so it didn't matter. But you don't want to offend other people 
by doing that. And he sort of says, don't um, destroy somebody else's weak faith because you're more mature than they are when you're on practice. But if we live like that, really, if you push that to its logical conclusion, well, you don't really have any freedom. You're constrained by the weakest believer in the world. So uh, I think this is an ongoing conversation. And so Paul, I don't think, really comes to a good conclusion in 1 Corinthians. And again, meat sacrifice to idols, um, I just, it's a tough thing. But boy, I think there's probably bigger issues in the world than that. Mm-hmm. Sexual immorality, when you read that phrase, you probably start thinking, oh, that's like, that must mean people are having, um, well, I don't know what you think that means. Sexual orgies. could mean orgies. You know, Christians for a long time have decided, uh, I mean, especially over the last 50 years, this is a censure about um, homosexual behaviors. Never unpacks what sexual immorality is. Have you noticed that? Never. Never run what? The author never says what that phrase means. Oh. So when we hear that and we say, oh, that's this and this and this, that says more about who we are than about that. Mm-hmm. So remember, if a woman or a man divorces their husband or wife and marries another person, that's adultery. But I wouldn't call that immoral at all. I would call that appropriate. Before you get in another monogamous relationship, you sever the one you were in. I think that's pretty thoughtful, actually. Um, mm-hmm. But that would be immorality. Is he talking about that? Maybe. You know, here's the classic case in um, in one Corinthians. Again, we see a lot of this in Corinth. Actually, um, there's a guy who has married his stepmother. So his father remarries um, stepmother, and Paul says. No pagan would even do that. But from the Corinthian perspective, let's consider, dad could be 72, he's married a trophy wife, he's maybe consummated the relationship, maybe not. Son's a grown-up, wife could be the same age as the son. They have no real relationship, she didn't raise him, she's not his mother, so they say, okay, listen, like we have freedom in Christ, so why not? And if it's the situation I just described to you, would you be more, um, would you be less offended by that situation? Particularly if, it's, if, the, if the, the father died. The father did die. Absolutely the father died. Yeah. Okay. It's not like he took his dad's, and it's, it's clearly not his mother. Yeah. Yeah. It's his stepmother. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you think about it, what, isn't there a law that says that you cannot marry your second cousin, but you can marry your third cousin? Something yeah, I like think that. that's in general how we do I mean, it. Still... But remember, Abraham marries his half-sister. So all of that's been... And all that's really culturally determined, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, is it morally wrong or does it result in, you know, lack of genetic variance to the point that there's birth defects? But is that a moral issue or is that a biological issue or are they the same? You, you, you get what I'm saying is this category is so fluid depending on the time period. Remember that most states have anti-sodomy laws whether you're hetero or homo. And, you know, I think um, part of it is that, remember that, that sodomization at this time is really a show of dominance. I don't want to defend the practice, but I mean, we often forget how these things were were bundled up and nuanced. They didn't think that same-sex couples could have mutual relationships. They thought that was about dominance. Um, And I would say if it's about dominance, I do think it's wrong. Whether you're straight or gay or, you know, that's why I think pedophilia is essentially wrong, is it's about dominance. It's not a relationship between equals, and it will never be. And so it's not okay. You know, children are not sexual beings, so anything you do to them is dominating them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, can we back up here a little bit uh, to your question, you know, is about why John did this. Why he wrote it. Why he wrote it. 
Well, you know, John was a man who was very deep with God. In other words, he was very deep with God. There was a very strong relationship there. So he's looking with the eyes that, eyes that see things that other people don't see, for one thing. And then the other thing is, is that well, John knows the history of the ancient people. And we go back to the Bible and we read there and that, you know, when things when they were worshiping God and paying homage to God and doing what God asked them to do, life went pretty well for them. But then when they started tra straying away from God and, then, and did not follow uh, the warnings of the prophets and so forth, then tragedy or, or war or whatever came to them. And also, uh, so John looks and sees history in a way repeating itself before in, in his current time. Because we can look and look at our current time. Oh, this is applying us to applying to us today. And so he evaluates where the Christians are versus the, the, the requirements of the cultures. Which one serves God more? Well, the culture sure is not doing it, and the people. They're beginning to wander. So I think that's why he wrote that, that to help them get back on track. I, I actually think John's doing something a little different. I think he's challenging the idea that when you do the right thing, you get physical rewards. I think he's actually challenging that because he says to the church in Smyrna, you're poor and you're persecuted, but... God notices what you're doing, and and you will be rewarded later. And then there's Laodicea, who is very wealthy, apparently, but they're getting, it's, it's not like they're earning their wealth through their faith. I mean, I think, she, I think John's actually writing because uh, he's trying to overthrow this assumption that you get what you pay for right now. And so there's these really faithful people who are suffering quite a bit. And John is trying to say, look, it's not always not as it seems, right? Actually, God notices that. And it's going to work itself out later. <laughs> so don't give up on your faith because you're being persecuted. Double down on it. And I think that's probably the number one relationship is life is not linear, you don't, you don't, you know, because you give money to the church, God's not going to grow your 401k. It doesn't work like that. But double down on discipleship and generosity because it's sort of the right thing to do and will lead to life later. And he does, and, and he does that. He <coughs> sees what's happening with the people. Yeah. And he needs to call their attention to it so that that... They have the choice of doubling down. Yeah, well, and I, I think this is sort of like the, the thing you get where sometimes people say, well, I prayed about that, and it didn't make a difference. And I think John is saying, prayer doesn't work that way, and it does make a difference, so don't quit. Change the way you view it, but don't change that you do it. <laughs> I think that's part of the book. Yeah. It was John... Uh, now, we don't actually know his name is John, do we? Um, but we I don't it remember. Is, but we assume it is. But, but, they, was, well, you don't, because there, there are several other guys that could have written his name. And was it written by more than one person? Yeah. Plus the fact there's no... Oh, no, no, his name's John. No, it happens in Revelation 1-4. Okay, it, it is John. Do you, it, it, from time to time when I was reading this, it appeared to me like there would be these... Places where it's like, well, this has ended now. This is starting up something new. Mm -hmm. um, almost as if it was, they took these letters and, and, and stitched them together. Stitched them together. But was he a leader? Was was there a leader in Christianity at that time? Somebody that they were looking to? But besides, yeah. Jesus, there's many leaders, and it's important to remember there's many schools of school. It's like in the Athenian way, like there's many. Group. So, so remember, in the earliest church, there's like the Jerusalem church headed by James. And then there's this group who says, no, Paul is our guy. And Paul does this himself. I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow uh, Apollos. 
I followed Jesus. So there's these things, and we still are doing that. Um, and really what I think it means is there's like schools of thought as how we're to live into this sort of new way of life. And there's variants. You know, the fact that people preserve the letter means it had to be influential to people or they would have crumpled it up. Um, we don't know which John it is. John the Baptist, John the Gospel writer, John the other. We don't know well, if... Well, we know it's not John the Baptist because he's dead. Well, he seems to be dead. That's very fair. <laughs> yeah, it could be John the Baptist's disciples, but probably not. I mean, I don't think anybody would tell you this has anything to do with John the Baptist. But the things I read, it says John of Patmos, and, and he says, I am, am uh, what, uh, been thrown out? Or, that's why I'm here. I'm in exile. Yeah, in yeah. exile. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a reference to somebody. And I think we, in our head, we often think, oh, this is the disciple John. Probably not. Mm-hmm. But, but probably had influence over a community and is and observing based on that community. Um, hey, there's this cognitive dissonance. People are practicing faith and their lives are getting worse. So how do you encourage them? I mean, I think that's the number one point of the book is to stay faithful regardless of what's happening. Because faith is not a game of you get what you pay for. It's not transactional. I don't think so. I think that's I think that's what John's really trying to ask mm-hmm. us to consider more than anything. I know I really digress talking about sexual immorality and about um, and about food to idols, but notice those are the two charges he brings to these churches. And again, we don't really know what they mean. I mean, that's really important. In some of the, in some places, he talks about Christian Jews that are following the Torah. Yeah, and then he's talking about. Uh, essentially, a Jezebel who is who is saying, you know, it's okay, follow the rules, but by the way, we're going to add a few more. We're going to loosen those rules, and you can do this. Yeah. Um, now, if you don't have to go as far as 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 um, um, sexual immorality. I mean, there are other rules that you can you can follow that that, that are just as as not just as, but are, are are not good things to do, if you will. But they're not that bad as. As, as, as you said. So, yeah. It's really amorphous. And Jezebel is a really interesting thing, right? And I think that's why they had us read about Jezebel. It's really like a corruption of the true faith. And this is where I think it becomes really interesting because I think it's very easy to read Revelation the way I grew up. I was taught that this is exactly censuring like the Episcopal Church, look what we're doing. We're ordaining women, we're ordaining gay people. This is what the book warned us about. Sexual immorality, idolatry, letting women preach. This is the kind of thing not to do. That's how I was taught to read the book because it's deviating from the rules. And that's why I think it becomes really important to think about this stuff is not clearly defined you know, as an Episcopalian, I would sort of say, oh, look, we're being persecuted because we're actually being faithful to, human, to God being invested in all human beings. And listen, we've, we've lost, as a denomination, we've lost people and resources. I mean, I, when I went to San Diego... Uh, there were five churches that had more than 300 people that over this Gene Robinson issue were down to 30. They'd broken away. I'll tell you here, we, we decided we'd be open and inclusive. Three or four couples left who'd been here a long, long, long time. That was a shocker. Shocker to me because we had no, relationships when the same discussion many had left earlier and that's why I thought why would you leave now we'd already gone you know y'all knew this was where the church was going right I mean we we called this a sacrament in 2015 the national church did mm-hmm. so I I was surprised I have to admit I knew not everybody agreed but we had relationships and that's part of the Episcopal Church I think is you don't got to agree with everything but we agree we're going to worship together you know so that one issue could be read completely differently depending on your outlook, right? If you've decided that's wrong, don't compromise. If you decided it's right, don't compromise. <laughs> <laughs> and how do, we, how do we really discern? I think that's a really great question, you know. There are times when I really wish it would be easier 
if we just had a set of rules that we knew for sure. You know, sometimes it gets complicated. Well, and that's, and that's, honestly, that's why we had the Reformation. We did have a set of rules, yeah. and they were rifely abused. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I tell you this, and, and I'm, not, I'm not throwing rocks. We, we all live in glass houses here, but I recently had someone essentially join the church who's a lifelong Roman Catholic, and the person said, you know, I'm a teacher, and I will be put in jail for doing what is happening in the Roman Catholic Church, and I cannot worship there anymore. It had nothing to do with theology. It had zero to do with um, the Pope. It had everything to do with covering up pedophiles. When I came here from my other Episcopal church, in between, I was going to Catholic church on Wednesday nights with a friend of mine who's very Catholic and was really pushing that, you know, you need to come back, you need to come yes. back. And, you know, it was kind of a comfortable thing to do. It was the path of least resistance for a little bit. And I I thought about it and I thought, I can't do this. I mean, it betrays every single thing I believe in. Mm -hmm. I can't do this. And I, 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 was, I don't know if this came out already, but I wrote this blog. <laughs> I don't ever do the blog because I wrote it it's in my head. There's a story in Luke that says when an unclean spirit is driven out, it goes around looking for somewhere to go. And when it can't find anywhere, it comes back and brings seven unclean spirits worse than itself, finds the house in order and occupies it. And so the final state is worse than the first. And I really struggled to know what that meant. And I mean, you read this in the blog, and I don't want to sort of give it away, but I, I did meet people in AANA who had given up their drinking addiction, but they picked up smoking and exercise bulimia, and they really hadn't dealt with their final state. And sure enough, they went back to drugs and alcohol pretty quickly, mm -hmm. but they had extra addictions on top of it. Mm -hmm. So their state was worse. But I don't think it's just about <coughs> addicts. I think it's about sometimes we have insight into what's right or wrong, and then we go back on it. And I think our final state is worse than if we never even knew it because we betrayed our brain too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we betrayed not just our principles, but our brain. And when you do that, it makes it that much harder to change and grow the next time around. I don't, I don't know. You can't I mean, get away from your brain. Yeah. You can't get away from it. I, I mean, mean, you can temporarily yeah. get away with it from it with but, drugs and alcohol, other things. Yes. But, you know, like I found for me personally, when I try to get away from things, I sometimes will end up dreaming about them, you know? Huh. And then I'm like, yeah. Great. No, I, I should have just, why did I not just <laughs> fix this mm -hmm. so that I could sleep and move forward? And it's like, I think I'm ignoring things, but they're still there because yeah. they're still here. Yeah. And when I'm betraying myself, that's the, the final worst. state's I worse than the last. Get away. <laughs> I cannot get away from that. Yeah. And, and, uh, so I don't know. And that's, I think, part of the thing that to tie this back to Revelation, I think that's part of the warning, particularly with the, the group that's going back under the law, is to say, listen, like you, you can't go back on, you know, you know better than to do that, so when you go back, it's not like you're just, okay, I'll do this instead. You really are going backward and facing backward as well. So face forward, I think, is the, the goal. Other, other thoughts <laughs> or reactions here? Nitpicking. Yep, nitpick, by all means. That's what we're here to do. Okay, it says, it says, with the key of David, Christ will unlock the door. Jesus Christ, descendant of King David, born in David's city. Yeah. To my mind, David's city was Jerusalem. Jesus was born. Uh, now, David was born in, Beth David was a Bethlehemite. He was. Now, in some ways, David's city is Jerusalem because he's the first one to conquer it. You know, the Jebusites own that, and he takes it from them. But, but David is a Bethlehemite. Oh, interesting. It is funny, though, to remember, and I think we talked, uh, this was in the blog, too, and Jesus is not related to David at all. Joseph is, but Joseph's not his dad. So he has no, no biological relationship. And that's, I think, a really important reminder about how we read the Bible. 
it's not about facts. It's about fulfillment. Mm -hmm. He represents Davidic lineage, even though he doesn't have it. This would drive my fundamentalist friends crazy. But the... <laughs> what do they believe? Do they believe he was somehow? Of course they do, but what they fail to realize is, is you know, like when you're, a, when you're a biblical literalist, there's just things you gloss over. And again, like I'm, I'm taking the Bible real seriously. Joseph is not Jesus' dad. He's not. That's true. Joseph is the one related to David, not Mary. What they'll say is, oh, Mary is also a descendant of David. Show me where it says that. Yeah. Nowhere. Or they infer that because he's a, he's a descendant of David. But that's not a safe inference to make. Isn't Mary a descendant of, of, of the uh, priestly branch? We have zero lineage from Mary because women don't matter. Well, yeah, now, we've concocted it. And we've, we've, cre we've made up St. Anne, but she's made up. There's no St. Anne. Sorry. Really? Mary had a mother. Yeah. Was her name Anne? Unlikely. <laughs> That's not a Jewish name. Immaculate Conception? Made up. Nowhere in Scripture. Now, maybe the Pope received insight that the Bible didn't have, but I'm a Reformation guy myself, and I'm real skeptical about that stuff. Yeah, they did that because of, I could because of original sin. That's why. Yeah, be born of a sinner. Would you would you elaborate on what you just said? So remember, Augustine is the one who decided when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the garden, Adam's sperm shriveled. Augustine believed that sperm was tiny men, complete people. There was no egg in a woman; it was all from the man, and so. How is it that human beings are formerly are, are, are born sinners? Augustine believed this is true because babies are selfish. All they ever do is think of themselves. They cry when they're hungry. They cry when they're dirty. They cry when they're tired. Me, 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 me. They cry when the person they love is, is hurt and crying too. This is typical man behavior. And of yeah. course it ignores our entire evolution that this is what mammals do. Right, mammals do these things. So, whatever, he decided that this is selfishness and where does it come from? Well, you're born with it, is what he decides. And you're born with it because Adam's sperm shriveled, like the nascent human beings that just enter into the womb without an egg are somehow compromised. And so, okay, well, well geez, then that would mean Mary has like a set of sinful genes. Well, she would pass them on to Jesus. Uh, except Mary was immaculately conceived. That is, St. Anne's Mary. The immaculate conception is not Jesus. Ah. We often get this wrong. Um, the immaculate conception is that when St. Anne was impregnated by her husband, God regenerated his sperm to be like the whole human being. That ended up being Mary. So Mary doesn't have any original sin with which to contaminate Jesus at his birth. Keep in mind, they didn't understand reproduction. They don't understand DNA. Yeah. Right? That comes 1,500 years later. That's essentially what the doctrine does. So it says that <clears throat> then... I actually, I actually want you to hear that that whole doctrine is absolutely counter to Scripture. Because Hebrews says Jesus was like us in every single way. Which means if Jesus was not born with original sin, then we can't be either. Otherwise, he doesn't work for us. So where did the little man that became Jesus come from? His dad. Oh, 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 ah. From, well, there's no quiet answer to that. Just God grew Jesus in the womb. Now, the Gospel writers are really clear. God did not have sex with Mary. Right. I, I want to say that's really important because in Greek religion, gods did have sex with people. Mm -hmm. So there's a virgin birth, but without God having a body and having sex. So it's similar to Greek religion, but it's also very different. So both Mary and Jesus were conceived without original, without sin. original sin. You got it. Mm, interesting. Supposedly, Mary 
All that's strange. <laughs> um, okay. Well, maybe it's good to say, you know, I, I hadn't read this before, and this is where, again, I really like this book more than the red book. There's these little notes about these cities, like Laodicea had water piped in. Um, I hope you found those helpful and interesting, because I, I, I'd never read that research. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but why not? You know, it makes some sense. It makes sense. Yeah, it was Laodicea that was built on the... Or the uh, fault lines. Yeah. yeah. But you know, I was looking at that map long ago, and I thought, well, how were the others not affected by that? Because they're all so close together. They would be really close. Yeah. I mean, that's where I think you, you take it with a little bit of grain. But I, but I do think this. There's this interesting bit about Laodicea about the pipelines and how the water came, the aqueducts essentially, and what that would end the water temperature. I think that's interesting. Um, we we don't always. Uh, realize this, this there's a couple of remnants you know they do mention this Ephesus has this temple to Artemis that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world you can still go to Ephesus and the ruins are in pretty good shape like I have one of those Roman amphitheaters akin to what they have in Jordan where you can stand and like snap and everyone can hear it uh, and you can talk in a normal voice and it, and it carries acoustically so they've got that going on um, you know Pergamum interestingly enough, also had this huge temple complex that the Germans uh, quarried and took to Berlin and put it inside a museum. It's called the Pergamum Altar, and it's in the Pergamum Museum along with the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. So it's a huge altar complex. If you're ever in Berlin, this is arguably the best museum in the world. The Pergamum Museum is amazing. Um, and you'll see this huge altar. The Temple of Artemis totally ruined, we think, by an earthquake, destroyed. Uh, so we don't have remnants of that, but we know one of, one of the seven wonders. Honestly, I don't know much more about the other cities. Those are, I'd say, the two that we've got the, some of the strongest records of. And I think Bonnie said something super interesting at the beginning, which is, and I think the book asks us this question, you know, um, hey, nothing's changed in some ways, but I'd ask you to consider that. I mean, if... if um, and I don't want to be over-personal here, but um, if John was writing a letter about St. Thomas, what do you think he'd write? Or if John was writing a letter to churches in general, what do you think he would write? You're talking about today? Yeah, today in a contemporary context. How, how, would, how would John update it for us? Well, it used different cities, one thing, mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, which ones do you think he'd use? I think that's a great question. If he could only pick seven cities, which ones do you think he'd pick? New York, New Orleans, Los Angeles. <laughs> in this country. <laughs> yeah, well, Houston's the fourth largest city in the nation, so... It is. Houston. You know, worldwide. Go ahead. Well, the question here really at the end is which of the seven churches does your congregation most closely resemble? And when I was reading through this, now I see a little bit in, in, in all of it, but the one that just stood out to me was Laodicea. Yeah. That's the one that stood out to me. Mm. Is Not that... completely, yeah. but I mean, we are a, you know, we are a well-to-do community. We are. So, so thoughts on that. Do you know what the wealthiest entity in the Episcopal Church is? Does anybody know this? Entity meaning uh, congregation or? Mm, congregation or diocese. Trinity, New York? Trinity Wall Street, which is a uh, parish, mm-hmm. has more money than any diocese in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> number two is the Diocese of Texas. Uh, number two is Virginia Seminary because of their endowments. Number three is the Diocese of Texas. Now, allegedly, St. John the Divine is the number two wealthiest parish here in Houston behind Trinity. But, you know, Trinity owns most of Manhattan. So Columbia University, the land is owned by Trinity Wall Street. They, they, they lease the land in an elaborate ceremony every year by writing a $1 check. A dollar is the deal. The president of Columbia must present it to the rector of Trinity Wall Street. So maybe that's Laodicea. But the third wealthiest institution is the Diocese of Texas. 
So, so maybe this is like Odyssey. I don't know the answer to that. Well, we certainly have these problems. Some of them, mm -hmm. yes. I was thinking specifically about this congregation. Please do. I think because we can bounce I'm back and forward. Please, because, <coughs> because um, you know maybe we're not a center of of, of banking uh, mm -hmm. and and uh, what is it uh, me medical and what have you. But we are certainly close to it, and we are certainly a congregation of of I'll say technocrats. Mm -hmm. uh, fair mm -hmm. part. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. No. We're really diverse. I want you to know. And there's a lot of money here. I mean, the congregants have a lot of money. They, they maybe they're not millionaires, maybe they're not billionaires. Yeah, but they have a lot of money. I, I, I would say that Saint John the Divine is probably the millionaire congregation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're definitely a step down from that. Yeah. But I think it's fair diversity. We had a meal. I had a meal at my house. And there were um, six different engineers there. That's how diverse we are. There was an aerospace engineer, an environmental engineer, a, um, a s mechanical engineer. Anyway, two other engineers. And eight people. That's how diverse we are. We've got all kinds of engineers. <laughs> but what would you say? Is John? Would John say, uh, "Hey, y'all, y'all are rich people at St. Thomas, and you're not looking after the gospel"? Would John say you're sexually immoral people and you're eating meat sacrificed to idols? Would John say, you know, keep up the good work? What, how do you perceive us to be? Beyond descriptions, you know, of, of, I mean, in general, let's be honest, we're an educated parish, like you said, we're technocratic. We're, I don't think we're homogenous, but we're mostly white folk here. You know, we are. Um, I, I don't think it's because we mean to be. I just think we are. Um, so that has to do with simply location. I agree. Agree. I'm not, I'll tell you, this is a white neighborhood. Well, you know, from, uh, I think the only thing, um, well, one of the things, because uh, uh, I don't know the parish that well, but as a newcomer, I would say that probably the average problem for most people is that they identify with the culture too much. Mm. You know, in other words, you, some of these churches, you know, they wanted to be comfortable and so forth and were concerned about their jobs, so they paid homage to some of those idols and things of that sort. And, um, you know, Americans in general worship greed because, and what is it thing that you put most of, whatever comes first in your life is your God. Whether it's money or whether it's power. In other words, what do you sacrifice yourself to serve? Mm. You know, and, you know, and usually if it's money or greed or lust or whatever, it's something that you, well, is supposed to help us. So where's God in that? You know, now if you're walking with God and you're trying to better yourself, there are deals you're not going to make with people who will, that that will not feed into what your relationship <coughs> with God is. In other mm -hmm. words, you, if you're a Christian, you the, the guideline or the teachings of Jesus. All right, you want to make this deal with this company over here. All right, well they are unethical in what they do. You know, they don't, mm. maybe they're not fair to their employees and things of that sort. Don't do business with those people because if you do, then you're enabling them to do what they do, which is wrong, and you don't want to be part of that. So there has to be some decision making here about what really will contribute to my life okay. and my family and what doesn't. I, I think that's a fair critique. But I would probably say that applies to every single American that there is. Uh, because, um, and, and I do think, uh, I tried really hard to live the ethical life. <laughs> and in some ways I had to give up because it's not possible. I mean, I, you, you it's say... It's not possible to do it 100%. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think it is because, uh, listen, if you have an investment, it's unethical. I'm just going to tell mm -hmm. you that. Mm -hmm. All investments are unethical. There's no such thing as purely ethical investments. And if you buy things, it's unethical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because everything we buy is unethically sourced. I don't care how much they tell you they're ethically sourced. They're not. I bought the most ethically sourced car I could, but the battery is like, is awful. 
The battery for With the Toyota the Prius is dreadful. But I sure think it's... I mean, these are all, you know... I don't know that there's black... I, and part of me makes me circle back and say, well, I don't know that there is black and white, purely. You know, in some ways I was taught that there is, but I didn't know that there is. Um, and I think that's a real struggle. I don't think that means, ah, well, hell, you know, let's not think about it at all because uh, we can't win. But I do think there's a grain of we got to do the best we can and sleep at night because, I, you know, good luck buying something made in America that's purely made in America right. and yeah. pays right wages. Uh, it's, you, you can't. Sorry, you can't. And listen, not everybody can afford to shop at Whole Foods. And Whole Foods mm -hmm. is not all organic and locally sourced yeah. anyway. Yeah. So I hope that was okay what I said. I don't want to dismiss you. I think it's really hard. Yeah. And I, I, I tell you, as somebody who works for the church, you know, we're a nonprofit, but we also have to operate like a business, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that does to me to be like the CEO of a business. Um, I, I never really thought about that but that is what I do and I, I plan parties and I'm a fundraiser and sometimes I'm a theologian <laughs> but you know I, I think probably what uh, is what it starts small within an individual in other words it's like for example a lying uh, so then you even taught not to lie and, but, you know, it comes along in business that, or something that, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't, you, you got caught doing something that you should not have done and you lie about it, okay? And you don't acknowledge it and you don't repent of it. Well, then it makes lying easier the next time and the next time. Yeah. So I think it's these little things that gradually lead us astray where we do because it impacts us on the inside mm. and then we become then we need to look at some point in life and say okay what kind of person have i become am i satisfied with who i am and most people are not you know people may ask themselves that question i don't know yeah. but there comes a time in life when you look at say where i've been and where am i now and where do i want to go yeah. and so we are all the results of our decisions. Can I be a complicator again? I think you're right, but yeah. can I be a complicator? Well, try. So um, my dad, my dad was my dad was visiting me a couple of years ago, and I, they were giving me some childcare coverage while my wife was out of town because I was doing a wedding, and I sort of complained. I was doing this wedding for a couple. You know, they asked me 10 days before they needed to have this ceremony if I'd marry them. And I said, you know, sure, if you do the premarital counseling. And they got it done. And I'm um, not doing that again. Anyway, um, we, they had this wedding at the beach. It was all, they were really poor and they needed to do it. It was fine. The wedding was supposed to start at 3. Well, it didn't start till 4.30. Of course, I've been there since 2.30. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't charge for weddings and that's right. You know, but I think I came home and said, you know, how was the wedding? It's like, well, you know, it was like strange. I've never done a wedding like this before that was an hour and a half late, so much so that some of the wedding party left. <laughs> and I think my dad said something like, well, of course, that's better than doing any kind of gay wedding. You hadn't done one of those, have you? And I said, not in Texas. That was true. <laughs> So I told the truth, and then he was like, well, you haven't done one at all, have you? Because if you have, you're going to hell. And listen, this was not the time for me to have the finer theological points. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? I think I was like, like I said, I haven't done one here. And I think he pushed again, and I was like, you don't need to worry about that. I, I had done a gay wedding in California. I absolutely had. And if I told the truth, completely told the truth in the austere way, I actually think it would have hurt my dad more than anything. So in some ways, I think I evaded full disclosure. But I think I did the right thing. And it's complicated. I, I've done that, you know, my dad. By him. Yeah. And I do that with my kids sometimes, yeah. quite yeah. honestly. Well, there are things you say at certain times and things you don't say. That doesn't mean you're, you're just not going to talk but about it. But I didn't tell the truth. 
in the fullest sense. Mm -hmm. I kept information back. But that's all right. You didn't have to tell the whole thing because you just said, I haven't done them in Texas. But if I'm going to go with you, and I want to go with you, I do, and I also want it to be complicated to go with you because it is, right? You start doing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where do you end up? And, and I hope where we end up is thinking really carefully and compassionately about others when we make these choices that are not really ever black and white. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I think it's <clears throat> okay to lie by omission if the lie is designed to ensure that by lying you prevent somebody from feeling pain or from hurting. Yeah. Be evasive. It, it's almost more compassionate. When, yeah. when my mom yeah. was really ill, um, and in the last couple of months of her life, um, we absolutely did a lot of omitting with yeah. her. Uh, my, my sister was pregnant with twins. There was some really scary stuff going on. You know, um, she would say, did you talk to your sister today? Yes. How's she doing? And I'd say, she's okay. You know, yeah. Yeah. okay. I didn't say, but my mom just wanted to hear she was okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was no way I was going to add one more mm -hmm. thing to her. You know, she was in the process of dying. So there was no, yeah. now, if something really had happened with my sister or the twins, of course, we would have told her. Or sometimes we'd tell her, my dad was at church. He was a choir director and a musician because we didn't want to tell her <coughs> that he was, necessarily going out to make final arrangements and yeah. stuff like that that needed to be made mm -hmm. that would just you know yeah. so i felt in those instances <clears throat> and some sometimes that my husband's had some struggles i've kind of when my children were young i had to kind of i would call kind of fudging it or or just mm -hmm. same thing just giving little bits of information yeah because it, there was no way it was going to benefit anybody mm -hmm. to hear. And in fact, because it is all about me, sometimes with my kids, if they had heard the whole thing, that would have made more trauma for me. Because yeah. then I would have had to deal with that. So it wasn't just compassion for them. It was, it was also compassion for myself where I was already. And what you said about... That was not the time for you to have the finer discussion. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Sometimes I've withheld things, and then when I felt like things were back. more comfortable mm -hmm. and we could actually sit down and converse about yeah. the situation, mm -hmm. yeah. then I'll say, okay, you know, this is, but it's, it, it is tricky. You it know, it's a difference if you have integrity or not. Well, this, I think, though, is what you're raising that I want us to go, is sometimes we can so believe in our own integrity that we don't realize we lost it a long time ago. <laughs> and I, and I, think that's, I think that's probably fair of anybody in the world because, as we all know, the road to hell is lined with good intentions. Uh, <laughs> and we compare ourselves to other people all the time. Of course we do. It's a lot easier for me to look good to myself yeah. when I'm looking at other people. I mean, in my mind, not in God's mind or anybody yeah. else's. Just mine. And, and, and yeah. so, for, as a fundraiser and CEO here, I'd say, boy, sometimes I wish we had more money. People aren't giving enough. But I didn't believe that's true. I didn't believe that's true because I didn't think that um, the, the, the church, St. Thomas, is the church that the Bible talks about. I didn't think that they're equitable. I mean, I think we're an organization. And I'll be quick to tell you, the Episcopal Church has many warts. I know them, many of them well. And I still choose to be here. Like, I appreciate the beauty along with the warts. warts. But I didn't think by upping your pledge, you're currying God's favor, and therefore you're being more faithful. I do think for this place to work, we have to do that, mm -hmm. but this place does not equal God. So, I, you know, I think this is like a hard bit, so I don't know. I've really been kind of racking my head with, with what the letter says to St. Thomas. I mean, I, I perceive that people in general are pretty like generous and responsive when we ask for things, you know, within, within reason. We didn't 
We didn't raise $1.5 million with the capital campaign, and we haven't paid for the organ, but the organ's not God, and neither is the capital campaign, so it doesn't mean that people are stingy. It means they choose not to support those initiatives like we hoped we might do. But I still think people are pretty generous here, so um, it's... It becomes really, for me it becomes, and I get to, I know, I know things you don't know. Like, I know how much people pledge, and I, I know how much they have pledged, and, and um, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't know that, I don't know, but whatever. Um, I try not to treat people differently, I think I'm pretty successful at that. Um, I, I will say, curiously enough, that the people who pledge the least are the ones who criticize the most and ask for the most from the clergy and the church. Um, all the time, pretty much. <laughs> but I don't hold that against them. That's what I'm here to do. I, I believe that. I believe people pay me to do what they don't have the time and training to do on behalf of people they've never met. And I, and I think if I identify that clearly, it helps me orient that that's what I'm supposed to do with my time. You know, and frame that to other people. Um, so I don't think we're stingy people. I think people here are very willing to be educated. You know, I think we, we're trying to pursue what's right. You know, mm -hmm. I consider you all doing that. I mean, look, you're spending an hour and a half a week for 32 weeks to read some weird book, you know, that is difficult to sift through. Um, you know, I, I, I think we appreciate variety and, you know, we, we, we build relationships with our community. I don't think that we have some watered-down worship here, but maybe I'm self-serving because I'm the one who does a lot of that. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the letter says to well, us. Yeah, you know, listen, I've had a variety of liturgical uh, prayer here that I have not seen anyplace else. It's interesting, it's informative, it speaks to me. So, as far as that, you know, don't worry about that. But, you know, it's about this lying, lying thing. There's a difference between being lying and, and uh, omitting information. Yeah. It's not the same thing. When people lie, they do that pretty deliberately, you know, for the simple reason that it either serves them some way or that's just the kind of person they are or whatever. Mm -hmm. but when you're, not giving information or uh, you know because of your concern about the other person and even a healthy concern about yourself that's a different matter you know so but lying is something that is done just for the benefit of because you don't want to face the truth or you don't want to help that person uh, you, you know or it may be directly to your benefit yeah so can yes. admitting, but so can admitting the truth be to your benefit. And yeah. sometimes, sometimes we judge we're doing it for the other person, mm -hmm. and that's the way we justify that. Mm -hmm. Frankly, we just didn't want to do that. But, my, my, but it's still involved. Well, I, I, I think that you can you can say you can admit something that brings no value by not by adding. Yeah, it, it's not no value to the conversation. Yeah. There's no value to the person who you are admitting it from. Yeah. If it brought value, that's a different issue. Uh -huh. And sometimes I omit things because, quite frankly, they're not the other person's business. They're just yeah. not. Yeah. You know, they're not. They're not a person I'm willing to go mm -hmm. into there with. I, what I want to say is, this is exactly what Bible study is supposed to do: is send us into a rabbit hole of of how it is we're meant to live. I absolutely no, this is right. Well, you know, nothing in life is, or very little, is black and white. I mean, there uh, are yeah, shades of gray right. everywhere. Yeah. And determining which shade of gray is the most, um, is the best thing to do, theologically, yeah. and the most spiritual way. I don't think and we Jesus even figure that, that out retrospectively, no. you know, because apparently yeah. there's not only 50 shades of gray, I think now there's 51 <laughs> shades of gray. I will tell you when I was teaching and I taught religion, the kids that had the hardest time in my class, especially the older kids, were the ones that were black and white thinkers. Yeah. yeah. They would absolutely freak out when 
grain was thrown in there because, you know, this was, they were excellent at math. They were really good at science. Oh, little left brain they were, yeah. but yeah. they would see me coming and they'd be like, oh my gosh, like they would, they would say, because I was not big on giving scripture to memorize. I, I really didn't do that. They would ask me, can I just memorize this scripture and you can give me an A? I don't want to have to do no. the, yeah. Yeah. one of the things I would have them do is do a skit where um, when Jesus went to dinner at Zacchaeus's house, we know they had a conversation, but we don't necessarily know. All we know is that the conversation completely changed Zacchaeus' life. And so they would write a skit in pairs or three about what that conversation, from what they knew about Jesus so far, what did they think happened, what, and it was hilarious. One of them, Jesus, would you like some chicken? I'm vegetarian. I have tofurkey. <laughs> you know? yeah. but, but the black and white kids couldn't do that. Because they'd be like, but it doesn't say yeah. in here. Yeah. We don't know what he said. And because you raised it, and we read it this week, remember in Numbers, Numbers is the black and white book. Mm -hmm. And there's this immorality at the, you know, worshiping the Baal of Peor, and somebody is doing this in front of Moses, and Phineas like runs them through publicly mm -hmm. and is a hero. And I think Numbers believes that. And I sort of think that's, I mean, that's exactly what Al-Qaeda would do. Right. Like that's, that's like jihad in the most manipulated sense of the word. That's like that guy who went into Episcopal Church three years ago and in the middle of the worship service shot an abortion doctor in the back of the head to do God's will. Yep. And... Um, in some ways, I think moral purity is probably immorality at its worst. Well, I think the key here is that, you know, we walk, uh, those who say we are Christian, then we focus on that. Yeah. In other words, and constantly ask God's help and guidance. You know, it's just uh, because uh, God is, uh, some person a long time ago said, uh, all as you wish, dear God, you please lead and I will follow. I don't remember what that is. But anyway, but there has to be some conscious awareness of God during the day, you know, just to remind us of what we say we believe in. And I, I think part of what this book invites us to do in these churches that I think is really, really hard from an, you know, is I have no doubt Jerry Falwell prayed that prayer every day of his life. And, and I believe that Jerry Falwell thought he was doing God's will. I just think he was completely wrong. I think he's one of the most hateful people to speak on behalf of the church publicly I've ever heard. But I would tell you, I think he believed he had integrity. I, be I believe the man had a devotional life. And I think he served an idol. And, and the son continues to do so. And, but, I, but I think he would say the same thing about me. And, you know? And so I think what's important is... Um, when you say he served an idol, what was the idol? Um, God hated the same people he did. <laughs> I apologize. His, his, I his idol was a god that of wrath and retribution, and um, who believed if you got the answer wrong, you failed the test and went to hell. And um, as a result, if you were going to go to hell when you died, you could go to hell now because your life was a waste. And you know, I remember his his bold assertion after 9/11 that God did that to punish us for things mm -hmm. like gay rights in the oh, NAACP. In the ACLU, the National Association Advanced of Colored People, people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. God punished us for that. Well, that's like after Katrina hit New Orleans. I had people tell me that that was absolutely because of sin, because New Orleans was so mired in sin. Well, I tell you, it didn't work. Go back to New Orleans today. It didn't work. God decided to just. <laughs> Wipe the whole city out. Yeah. That's what that was about. Yeah, and again, not effective. And I and I bet and I would tell you, I believe 
those people believe yes. that they are listening to God yeah. and they're praying. Yeah. And in some ways, who am I to say they're wrong? I just, I think they're wrong. And I think part of this book and part of Bible study is really, I think, to call us out of verifying our own prejudice and, and really to get us to consider. And if we, I mean, my, my understanding is that life is supposed to be shared at no one's expense. So if it's costing somebody life, I'm doing it wrong. That's a really hard thing to evaluate, especially with the way I spend money, period. Um, but, you, you, you know, uh, that's my criticism of Jerry Falwell, is he's very comfortable with life being at other people's expense. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I was just thinking about it this week, that's one of my biggest criticisms with calling Friday Good Friday. I didn't think there's anything good about Friday. No. I mean, it is a perversion of justice. And a man is crushed. That, that used to come up in my classes a lot, too. They were it, like, what's It's a Protestant title. It's a Protestant yeah. title. Now, listen, people for a long time have believed that Jesus took our punishment, and I can't believe that personally, but they still called it Black Friday, not Good Friday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, I mean, I think that's the hard thing, right? Is is how we live into this as a worshiping community. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Next week, we'll talk about whoa, whoa, whoa. I think. Yep. So, so 